Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Navina, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Today, my guest is Hans Decline. Hans is a Grammy-winning Los Angeles-based mastering engineer. He has worked with a humongous list of amazing artists, including U2, The Pixies, Veruca Salt, Lisa Loeb, Letters to Cleo, Richie Ramone, and so many more. Inside of this interview, he shares a very fresh perspective on mastering, and especially the concept of mastering from a home studio. And Hans has a pretty humble setup going on in his home studio and yet this guy is absolutely crushing it winning grammys working on amazing records and his attitude towards this whole industry and the process of learning is just very refreshing and i think that if you're even remotely interested in learning about mastering i think you're going to get a lot of great insight from this interview and i think you're going to feel really encouraged to dive deeper into learning about mastering so with that said, let's get right into the interview. This is my interview with Hans Decline. Hans Decline, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How you doing, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Mike. Of course, no problem. For people who might not know your background, your story, who you are, how you got into music, and ultimately into mastering, can you give us that that quick story? Yeah, I will try to make it quick. It's definitely not that interesting, but uh, I was uh, uh, 15. Uh, fell in love with my parents' records probably initially, uh, so even a younger age, like they were always playing the Rolling Stones, Beatles, Donovan, uh, Chuck Berry, Aretha Franklin, you know, all the greats. And um, I, little did I know that was sort of the soundtrack of my childhood. And so uh, it kind of morphed into, um, you know, Run DMC and all that kind of stuff for me. And I got interested in playing and recording. So 15, I got a, a four track and started uh, recording stuff, got a bass, was in bands. And um, right around that time was sort of when you have your own four track at home, you start to learn how to engineer, but you don't even know what you're doing or, you know. So uh, that was just kind of stabbing around in the dark and how what what sounds cool and what doesn't. And then in the meantime, I was also making mixtapes like from uh, with my four tracks. So I was taking vinyl or cassettes or whatever and making my own compilation tapes. And then I would balance the volumes and the EQ and stuff like that on my four track and then bounce it all down so that it sounded like a commercially bought um, a compilation. So that uh, little did I know that was mastering, you know, um, and so. <laughs> Flash forward, here we are. But in the meantime, I uh, I, I went to uh, I went to college because uh, my parents told me that they would kill me if I didn't. Because uh, all I wanted to do when I graduated high school was get in a van and tour and play in bands and stuff, and um, really had no thought process that that could even be a career. It was just a sort of an immediate sort of want that I wanted. And like I said, my parents were like, no, you're going to go to college. So I went to college uh, and did bands and recorded that whole time. And when I graduated, I got a record deal from a, basically a, a collection of songs that I had written and recorded and produced myself when I was in college. And that was the beginning of my, my music career. 
they threw me at the wall that, that didn't stick. Um, but I, you know, produce, you know, I helped record and produce my first record on Sony and, um, um, we toured a bunch. And then at the end of all that, uh, I realized I wasn't going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, thankfully for myself and everyone else. And, um, uh, I sort of started to kind of make segue into sort of engineering and I kind of, you know, sort of uh splashed around and trying to mix and produce and none of that really did anything for me and nobody really ever patted me on the back and said good job at least i didn't feel like i was doing a great job and around 2000 a friend of mine the year 2000 a friend of mine uh needed mastering and didn't want to pay you know five grand or whatever it was at the time and i said bring it over here let's do it I had no idea what I was doing and, um, and, uh, he was stoked when I was done. And, um, I had a couple engineers that worked on that record that were like, Hey, this sounds great. I don't know who you are, you know? And, uh, I started getting work from that. And then flash forward five years later, I pretty much quit my day jobs, whatever I was doing to pay the bills and, uh, and just did this full time. So that's the, that's the short as short an answer as I can give you on that. That's amazing, though. There's and there's a lot in that story that is really cool to hear. Um, you know, I love the way you kind of just described like making those mixtapes and adding processing to those, and how essentially that was mastering, and it just led to ultimately like where you are today. So it's it's kind of like crazy to think about how something that was so so simple and like kind of like naive in a way, almost like you were you were naive to the process that you know you would eventually make it as a career, you know, um, it, it's, it's very cool to hear it done, explained that way. Um, and I, and I'm curious to, to get your opinion on this too, because I feel like mastering is one of these terms that, you know, there's so many different terms that people use when they're talking about music production. And I feel like there's a lot that are just wrong the way that people describe it. And I feel like mastering is one of these things that like a lot of people get confused with mixing and, and, and there's just a lot of like, curiosity around what that word means i'm curious to know like how how do you describe what mastering really does <laughs> um you know i i view it as uh as polishing so you know the difference you know and and you know so the difference between mixing and mastering obviously is you know just from a technical standpoint, we're just, po I'm just polishing a stereo mix, right? Whereas mixing, you're literally taking in a stereo mix really consists of two channels, which is, chan you know, left and right, right? That's what stereo is. It's just two channels. Whereas mixing is obviously you could have 10, 15, 120 tracks, right? And then that's taking all of that and can, you know, reducing it down to distilling it down to stereo. Um, so you know, the, it's easy to confuse, right? Because a, a lot of people now are working when they're mixing with stuff on their master bus and, you know, plugins and, and sort of track counts and all of this stuff is ubiquitous and, and unlimited uh, to a certain degree. And so it's easy to confuse the process now, I think more than ever, uh, whereas there was a very distinct dividing line back in the day. Um, uh, but I don't necessarily think it's bad. And I, I think things have changed in terms of aesthetic. And I think now mixes are expected to be more finished, which is why people work with stuff on the mix bus when they're mixing. And and to clarify, stuff on the mix bus would be limiting compression EQ, right? That's that's doing stuff on top of whatever you're doing when you're mixing. Um, I think, uh, 
you know, I think it's a mistake to, um, I think there's no wrong way to do that stuff. And I think it's as long as you understand um, the end goal uh, that it's just supposed to sound good. Right. And I think a lot of people just overthink like, well, if I do this or, or I need to do that, or I need to, you know, I feel like a lot of people hear about one thing, like a tip somebody suggests, and then they just do it like religiously on every mix. And that's like, you know, I hear stuff where people do a lot of the uh, elliptical uh, EQ stuff, right? Where it's uh, making uh, the, the low end mono uh, or messing with that stuff. You know what? Sometimes that sucks. You know, there's always sort of, I mean, I honestly think like a lot of times, like some of the things are good ideas on, on certain mixes, but you really have to listen to decide what is a good idea or not, you know? So that kind of stuff. And I bring that up just because that was a, a recent thing I've been sort of dealing with with some stuff where I feel like the low end, everything is just really like claustrophobic and just down the middle. And it's like really like, you know, just too much. And I'm like, you know, it actually sounds better with the bass, like, you know, panned out a little bit, you know, just give it some room, you know, and then all of a sudden you actually get a bigger mix. But the, you know, I, I get the idea that like, you know, so, you know, for a long time, you know, mono mixes was like, well, that's louder, you know, it's all this quest for loud. Um, and believe it or not, you know, expanding the stereo field can make something much louder than it was in mono. So it just kind of depends. It really depends on, on the music. And I'm kind of getting away from what you originally asked me, but, um, back to your point, mastering, uh, should just be balancing songs. Uh, if it's a collection of songs and it should sound better, you know, and sometimes it doesn't need much. Um, and really the mastering guy, I think even though we use the same tools, it's, uh, it's a different mindset. You know, what I'm considering when I'm using a compressor or an EQ, uh, across a stereo mix is probably not what you're considering when you're mixing. And they shouldn't be, they should be two different animals in terms of, you know, you're, you're using an EQ when you're mixing, uh, on an instrument in relation to other instruments and channels. Um, whereas I'm literally trying to carve out little, little minute details in a mix. There should be no real heavy lifting. You know, I mean, if I'm, you know, I read once where a mastering engineer was talking about boosting eight DB in the low end on a mix. And I was thinking to myself, what did that mix sound like that that sounded okay when you did that, right? You generally speaking from the mix, once it hits mastering, there should not be huge moves like that on any, like a compressor or an EQ. Now, you know, shouldn't doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's, uh, it's not needed, but, but the point still stands that like extreme movements like that, are normal in mixing. They're not normal in mastering. I don't rarely do I boost anything more than, you know, one or two dB and that's pushing it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, I think that that says a lot to do with the quality of mixes that you get as well. Right. And, and also the, the philosophy of the mixing engineer as well, because I think that there's, there are mixing engineers that kind of expect that the mastering engineer is going to just drastically change their mix. And that's not the real way to think about mastering. It's, it's like you said, it's kind of just sweetening up like an already good mix, right? It should be, it should be better. And that means whether it's a bad mix or whether it's a good mix, it should still sound better. And here's the other thing. And when I'm working, you, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something. I think 
there is a greater expectation now on the mastering engineer to really hit a home run because now most people can do mastering at home. Now you have the plugins. Uh, you kind of you watch tutorials. You kind there's it's not really a black art anymore, you know. And so far as you know the tools that we're using, and you know what the goal is. So then it comes down to I know when I get a mix from people, they've already mastered it. I know they have. I know they have strapped a limiter across and played with it for a while and decided. Mm, it's good, but let's see what another, you know, what a mastering engineer can do on it. And so I know this. And so the bar has been raised in that sense, not, not lowered, raised, because everybody can master. The point is what, you know, what, what can really sort of, what can a mastering engineer really do? And I think, you know, you, you, I'm not going to send you your mix back. Generally speaking, I'm not going to send you your mix back and go, yeah, it's fine as it is, unless it really is, you know, and, and that's some, that's a conversation that I've had with people before too, you know, where we've kind of gone back and forth and I go, you know, you should use your, your loud ref, like as a master, it's good. You're attached to it. You dig it. I can't beat it. Use it. Right. And that's an ego thing. And some people can't can have that conversation and some can't. But it's it's good. And ultimately, you know, if if you know not I don't think everybody can can change hats. First off, there's not that many Trent Reznor's out there. Right. Who can, you know, write the songs, perform them, record them, mix them, master. And even he hires, you know, he hires mixers and masters. But just the art of songwriting, recording and producing your own stuff. That's a lot of hats. And I don't know, I know a lot of talented people. I don't know a lot of talented people that wear all those hats. So there is a need for separation of powers, just like in government. And it's a checks and balances. And it's good like to have other people come in at whatever step of the process and, and sort of add or give you some frame of reference or perspective on it, you know? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think that sometimes you just need that extra person in the mix to just verify what you've thought the whole through the whole way through the process. You know, you you mentioned something a couple seconds ago. You said that anyone can master. So, with that said, why hire a mastering engineer? What is, what does a mastering engineer, a true mastering engineer, bring to the table that the others don't? Well, I you know. I've mastered probably I'm into a thousand records at this point. So I bring that to the table, right? That's first off when I, you know, again, the year 2000, which sounds like a Conan O'Brien joke um, in the year 2000, um, you know, when I, when I kind of started doing that, by the time I started actually mastering full time, that's all I do, you know? So I don't mix I don't produce. I stopped writing songs many, you know, decades ago at this point. Um, still have a love for all of that, but like uh there is uh uh expertise is important and it's real, right? It's not just a dude who googled stuff and then put out a YouTube video about it, right? This is the expertise is people who actually do it every day. And, um, and they bring a lot to the table. And you know this because when you hire a handyman or somebody to come over and fix something at your house or your place, those cats have tricks. If you watch them, they're doing stuff like it's magic. And it's because they do it every day. 
right? And that's the point of hiring anybody with expertise. Now, does that mean that I'm always going to be better than you? No. Um, if you have all the time in the world and you're only working on one thing, you have a good chance of beating me on something. You do. And I also have the humility and the sort of experience to understand that sometimes I'm not going to get it better than you did. But you got to hit a home run every song. And so do I, you know, and that's the point is that you may get one song and a sweet spot. How are you going to get all the others there? Right. And that's where experience uh, comes in. And um, and you can still learn a lot from somebody who kind of, like I said, brings a fresh perspective to it. And I haven't met anybody yet who, expert or no, hasn't learned something from somebody else, you know, including other people in the process, especially when it's creative stuff. For sure. Yeah, that's, that's the reason why we got this podcast, right? So people can learn from other people. So, yeah, that, that's that's an amazing point. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. The experience definitely goes a long way. And that's that's the reason why someone who has those trained ears can do better than someone else, you know, like it's just that, that experience that goes along with it. Um, you had mentioned when you were telling us your story, how you got a record deal and you basically ended up like working on your own record, which I think for like a major label release, that's, that's a very rare thing that they're like, Oh, this guy knows what he's doing. Let's let him deal with it himself. You know, like that's usually something that only happens after you've had like years of experience, years of sales. And they're like, okay, well right. we trust you. Right. So, um, so I'm curious to, to know, like, obviously, Obviously, at that point there, you must have had good enough mixing skills for them to to obviously trust you in this in this process. And and I'm curious to know, like, do you think that it takes having good mixing skills to be able to master properly? No, because I'm so let's correct you on a couple of things. Okay. First off, I'm a terrible mixer. Terrible. Okay. So the only thing I got right on the record label side of stuff was that I could write a song and I had a voice and. And Nirvana had exploded a couple uh, couple years before when I got signed. And I happened to be playing music that kind of was in that genre. So, you know, there was a confluence of things, both my talent uh, and skill, but also circumstances. And a lot of life is, you know, circumstances and, and capitalizing um, on opportunities when they come. Um, or, and luck, capitalizing on luck. You know, you can be lucky. Lots of people are lucky, but it's kind of what you do with it, you know. And I have certainly been lucky um, and I've had good fortune, but I've also been able to sort of channel it. So in that particular case, the guy that I was doing demos with when uh, so I did demos myself uh, w- when I was in college on a four track, they were limited. Probably I haven't gone back and listened. They probably didn't sound that great. Um, but they showcase the songs. Um, the guy, my partner on that record, uh, who ended up being partner on record, heard those demos and he helped me record it with a live band um, instead of doing multi-track, me playing every instrument with a drum machine. And actually we put a band together and we recorded it at his house. Um, and so he, he had the skills. He had the more of the recording and the mixing and the producing side of it, which at the time... I was just a dumb kid in my my parents' uh, be- bedroom doing stuff um, with little concept beyond. I knew I didn't want to sound like a bar band or a local band, and and that's not to slag off bar bands or local bands. I just meant, you know, where I grew up, which was Tucson, Arizona. 
it seemed to me as though everybody was just kind of doing, was kind of comparing themselves to each other in their little local scene. And I was like, I want to make a record that sounds like, you know, what's on the radio. Like, I'm not interested in competing with, um, you know, the dude who's in the bar every night, who's, uh, you know, playing covers. Like, that's not, that's not, I mean, that's not what I want to do, you know? So um, anyways, my point, I, I keep getting off subject, but uh, which is the story of my life. But um, the uh, so, yeah, I did not have um, I was not a mixer and I never was even after all of that stuff with the with the band. And, um, you know, we hit, we did our record um, and we hired a, a big mixer who I won't name, uh, who we fired five songs into it, because when we handed him the hard drive, uh, he didn't know what it was. We did it all on Pro Tools too. This was 1995. We so an early version. It was the Session Eight is what we did the demos on, um, you know. And then uh, and then we got a bigger version of Pro Tools to do the the record. But uh, they didn't even know what they didn't know how to mix from a hard drive. We were like one of the early adopters of all that stuff. So uh, you know, anyways. Did I answer your question? I kind of meandered. Yeah, Sorry. I guess, you know, the, the idea of just like whether or not you need to know how to mix to master, I, I uh, you know, I'm, no. I, okay. <laughs> that short answer is no, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious because I feel like, you know, there is there is obviously overlap between the tools and, you know, like EQ compression, all that kind of stuff. In the mixing stage, you would definitely be using them. And I do feel like there are a lot of people who get into this because they want to be in complete control of their own projects. They, you know, they want to, be the one that does everything. And I also know that there are a lot of people when they first get started with mixing that, you know, they, they maybe don't understand the concepts of using EQ properly, or, you know, they just don't know how to create clarity within all their tracks. So then those same people tend to also say, I want to master my record. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just curious, like, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, if, if you can't understand how, if you don't know how to use EQ, can you, can you master properly? <laughs> or do you need to learn those tools, right? I I'm a believer in uh, just going for it. I mean, I don't listen there. The beauty of creative processes is that there are no rules. And especially when someone's not hiring you to do it and it's all your own stuff. I mean, how else are you supposed to learn? Right. Um, everybody starts not knowing anything. And I think it's, it's excellent to just open stuff up and start turning knobs, you know, um, and, you know, and we live in an age now where you can fire up YouTube and watch tutorials, which are great. And I do it for like home repair stuff, you know, um, just, it, it, you know, it doesn't make me an expert, but it gives me a place to start, you know, and I think that's important. And I encourage people to tackle all of it. I mean, for me personally, you know, uh, the only reason. I can see doing everything yourself is for budgetary reasons. And, and I totally get that. You know, this is uh, people's expertise and services are expensive and it adds up. Um, believe, believe me, as, as you, I'm sure your listeners are well aware, you know, all the, all the hardware and software and all the other stuff's expensive too, you know, but at least you end up with, with an investment, right? Where you can continue to keep using it. Uh, so I get, I get it. And I'm a huge proponent of, of home recording and do it yourself. That's literally how I started, right? A four track, 15 year old kid in a bedroom, you know, 
and I'm still operating out of, you know, I'm not operating out of uh, Capital Studios. You know, I operate out of a, an addition built onto my house and um, it's not a fully treated, you know, specced out mastering room. Uh, but I know my room, <laughs> you know, I know what stuff sounds like in it. Uh, and I, you know, I really believe like uh, if you learn your room, you learn your speakers, doesn't matter what it, what they are, uh, you can do a lot with it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with all of that. And I also kind of just the way you answered that question, I, I think you could really summarize that question of like, you know, do you need to know EQ and compression? You, you, said, you just said go for it. And and I think that kind of connects to something you said earlier, which was just like, in the end, does it sound better? And that's really like, that's the ultimate goal is like, if you if you made it sound better, then you've, you've it's better. Like, how can you argue against that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I think, and I also think, you know, there's people, you know, there's like the, the meme going around about, you know, the guy who's, you know, spends so long mixing that he's a skeleton or, uh, you know, the, the process of mixing where at first you're super stoked and then you go through the process where you hate it and, you know, and you, and whatever. Right. Well, a lot of that stuff hints at something else, which is that you, you've got to have perspective. The, the best button that ever existed on any piece of gear, no matter how expensive, uh, is either off or bypass. And, you know, a lot of people get spin, you know, and another thing, Rick Rubin has a great quote about, uh, about dialing in stuff. And he says, uh, it was something, and I'm paraphrasing cause I, I'm not as smart, but, uh, it was something to the effect of, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if, if the small, if, if the things that come down in the mix come down to small tweaks that are almost indistinguishable or not discernible, it's not worth it. It's not you're spending too long on it already. You know, if it's not, if it's a tiny little thing, and when you flip something on and off, and it's not really making a big difference, and half the room can't tell, it's you've already spent too long on it. It's time to move on to something else. You know, you should make moves that really matter. Um, and, and in mastering, it's a that's a little more complicated because there is some real subtlety that that matters. But again. Uh, Whenever I find myself going down a, a, a wormhole where I'm just you just is spending a ton of time on a little thing on a little section of a song, I kind of realize at that moment like it's time to step back or and or hit bypass and leave the room, come back, listen fresh, go. Why was I? That's not important. That was a thing that was not important. You always want to keep your eye on the forest with stuff, whether you're mixing, producing, recording, or mastering. You know, there are details, the details are important, but the guys to me that are really successful in terms and in, in sort of working professionally, they see the forest. They see like, wh what's the big picture here? Is the song solid? Is it all working together well? You know, then it's like, do we really need to spend time? Uh, you know, you know, adding just the right reverb to the hand claps. Really? Is that really time well spent when you're working for yourself? And this is one of the downsides to DIY is that you can go on and on forever. There's never an end, right? You're not on a budget, really. Nobody's waiting for it. Um, you know, there's no clock. Uh, you could run out, you could do, I mean, I know people who've worked on one song and I've done it, by the way, this is not a judgment. This is probably why I went into mastering is because I needed something else to focus on. You could work on one song for a year 
that best that better be the best freaking song that anyone has ever heard in the universe if it took you a year to do and i guarantee you that if it took you a year to do it it is not the best song in the world it's <laughs> it was not. probably amazing after two weeks but <laughs> it was amazing maybe for the you know the first 30 minutes when you thought of it and then you ruined it for a year right because really art and and creativity songwriting it's about capturing the immediacy of the moment of a feeling or a thought and the more you get into overproduction and sort of remixing and retracking, you can really, really ruin the momentum of just about anything, you know? So, so then that, that kind of brings up another question of, you know, how long does it normally take you to master a track then? <laughs> okay. So the, uh, I've seen people, big cats, um, master track in five minutes. Uh, there's no, there's no time limit, uh, or minimum. Uh, I was horrified because I really think like you, the, the first off the most songs are three to five minutes, right? So you haven't even listened to the whole thing through once before you've already basically printed it. Um, you know, that's a bit like there's some people who phone it in. Um, and here's the thing, guys like that, get beat by people like me because I'll spend an hour if it takes. Sometimes I've spent two hours. Now, is that time well spent when I charge a flat rate? No. However, I still want it to be the best that it can be. And, um, and it all works out because sometimes there's a song uh, that takes me 30 minutes to do, you know? And so, you know, it, it, it all kind of works itself out. Um, but that's where the flat rate starts to become an issue. But on the up, you know, it's good for the client and it's good for me because it keeps me um, not doing what we just discussed earlier, which is working on the same song for a year. Right. I don't I, I actually still have to like, you know, I have other records that I need to do. So th there is a constraint, um, but it keeps me sort of sort of focused on, okay, well, this is what we need to do to get this song happening. And then we need, you know, I have other things I have to do, but I'm not, uh, uh, it's, I'm not a, above spending two hours on a song if I need to, you know, and you ask why on earth would it take two hours? I mean, some people mix a song in two hours, you know, um, I like to kind of play, you know, I, I kind of start fresh with songs and, Sometimes I start out with one thought about what's working and what isn't. And once I kind of get through into it or nearly done, I go, mm, I've changed my mind. This, it needs a different approach. Um, I'm not the most efficient, uh, but I, um, don't send it to you until it's done, until I'm happy with it, you know? And so I don't get a lot of revisions because of that. You know, I feel like people generally go, yeah, that's, that made that song better, you know, didn't change it. It just made it better, you know, and I, that's my goal. I don't want to like reinvent the wheel. I just want to embellish what's working about the song and the mix, you know? So, yeah. Well, I, th I think that's really important to, to know your, to know yourself well enough to know when you need to spend a little bit more time or when you can go a little bit faster. And, and, I, and I think some people listening to this will be, will be shocked when they hear that, 
you know, a master can be done in half hour or, or even two hours for some people or, or five minutes probably blows a bunch of people's minds, right? Like there, there are people that are do that are, have a successful mastering career based off five minute masters, you know, but it, it but, I, but I think with all of that, no matter how long it takes you, it all comes down to that point again of like, is it sounding better? And with that experience, I would like to think that the person who's doing those five minute masters is someone who is coming at it from an experience level of like they've maybe systemized their process so that they, they make them work faster because they have this mental checklist or something like that. Right. But, but I guess, yeah, at the end of the day, if it's whether it's five minutes or two, two hours on a everybody's, master, like, everybody's different, right? Every, everybody has a different process and some people are better at certain things than others. Um, yeah, I think that you can be, I think that as you get into things and you get more experience, you you ideally should get faster. Um, but I, like I said, you know, people surprise me. I get, you know, for as long as I've been doing this, there's always something I learn. Once a week, there's something where I go, oh, wow. You know, and like, so, it, you know, from, from that standpoint, there's, I don't, I'm never that comfortable to the point where I could put a blindfold on and just dial it in. You know, and there's always a thing where I, I will switch up how I work um, or discover a better way of working. Um, and I and I like that. I mean, I think I think if you if you again, if you're a real expert, you're you're you have humility. Um, not and not again. I'm not like, yeah, you, you have you should what makes someone have expertise is being not just having the experience, but continuously growing and learning. It's your expertise does not mean, you know, everything, you know? Um, and so I think, you know, and it's especially important um, these days to understand the value of working relationships uh, and community um, in whatever facet of the music business that you're in, you know, relationships are key. Um, and all of the learning and, and sort of progressing that I've done in my business is a direct result of like mentorships and people, other engineers who have taken me under their wing or are given or, or, or trusted me with their mixes or had faith um, that, that in me to, to deliver, you know, yeah. so all of that stuff's important, too. Of course. So then how did you, like you mentioned mentorships and that kind of thing. Like, how did you learn to master? Obviously you were kind of playing around with it on your own with, with your mixtapes and stuff like that. But did you ever have any formal sort of education with it? I didn't. I didn't. Um, I, uh, I read, um, Bob Katz's book. That was really probably the only resource out there back in the day. Um, and it really doesn't tell you how to master just kind of tells you the general sort of ideas. Um, uh, you know, I'll tell you, I had, I had the basic components. Um, I, and I had an understanding of what the objective was. Um, and, and I use, and I still, to this day, uh, I use references. So if someone says, you know, brings a song to me, I'm very good at identifying what they're shooting for. Right. I can kind of tell you when I hear your song, who you're a fan of. Right. So I can kind of and then I decide at that point, well, you're a fan of this. So what's the best example of that? Right. And I pull that into the session and I use that as a comparison, you know. So my school was that was listening to records and being able to use other people's records and other people's masters as references 
Um, and I still do that to this day. I mean, that it's, it's, you know, it's a compass. It's a, it's a true North so that you kind of have an objective, you know, what this should sound like or what this person wanted it to sound like. Um, and that allows you, uh, at least, a, 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 you know, a guiding light, uh, to shoot for. Yeah. You know? I love that. I think that's such a great point to bring up because yeah, references are just such a handy tool. And whether you're trying to teach yourself mixing or you're trying to teach yourself mastering, when you already have something that is kind of a, a standard to, to live up to, right. If you can make it sound like that, then you've, you've won, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. so yeah. So that, that was the, the, the major component of me sort of learning as I went along. Um, but uh, literally just doing the work was was the learning. But I had engineers, um, you know, uh, buddies that were, you know, much more experienced and were successful mix mix engineers and had Grammys and stuff uh, early on that were friends of mine. Tell me what I should be doing, too. Like they would give me a mix and say, you know, like, well, I remember one of the first records I mastered. Um my buddy, uh, uh, Brad Cook at the time, uh, he, he goes, he goes, it sounds great. Uh, he's like, but what about the tops and tails? And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even know what the hell he was talking about. I wasn't paying attention to the beginning or the ends of the songs. He's like, yeah, it, it cuts out on the fade, you know? And I was like, oh, well, I got to do that too. You know what I mean? Like, that's just simple. You know, that's just a simple you think mastering 101 get make sure that the tops and tails are trimmed correctly and smooth i was so focused on making sure that the song sounded rad it, that hadn't even occurred to me you know so that is that was that's a mentorship you know like i had a friend who go who who was who could pat me on the back and say that sounds really great but you know you cut off the end so fix that you know and the nice thing was i didn't get judged and i didn't get fired for that you know then that's how people learn and um you know, and it's funny to me now, I still think about it every time I'm doing that, you know, like tidying up the tracks at the end. I go, oh, you know, how did I, you know, it's funny that I missed that the first time around, you know? Yeah, it's it's one of those things. Yeah, the, as you're learning this stuff, you kind of just become, you, you grow this mental checklist of things that you should be listening for or doing. And, and, that, and that just becomes your process from then on, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now you you mentioned uh, home studios and home mastering, and obviously your studio, from what I can see, it's like it looks like it's a normal normal room. It's not like super fancy, all decked out, floating floor, amazing acoustic treatment and stuff like that. And I think that a lot of people would probably be surprised by that because when when we picture mastering studios, you know, all these mastering studios, we the, the big ones are always like these massive rooms with crazy designs and all sorts of super expensive, fancy stuff that people just can dream of getting but never afford you know so, so i'm curious to know like you know you've always worked in a home studio from what i understand and you've been able to have a successful career at it so what do you think is the secret to being able to be a successful mastering engineer in a home studio environment results i mean look we live in an age where it's all about how it looks on instagram right uh but before that uh, nobody cared, you know, there weren't, you know, a lot of these big studios didn't have fancy websites. Uh, there weren't, weren't a ton of, you know, flashy, uh, Photoshop pictures and colors and all that stuff. And I kind of came up out of that. And so people just trusted me. And, uh, you know, the number one thing that I've done running a successful business out of my home, that's, you know, mastering 
is, uh, again, uh, you know, I do a, t- a test master for anybody that comes to me. Uh, I'm like, well, you know, you don't, you know, I don't mind doing shootouts with other guys. And I've done shootouts with everybody in every major studio here. And I've won those gigs. Not always. Sometimes they beat me. And that's not really about the room then. You know, it's kind of about the pilot, you know, um, who, what the aesthetic choices were, how I heard it versus how they heard it. Um, and that's how mastering is an art and not just a science that there's not, it's not a tech, it's not a, a, a list of technical specifications that everybody who knows what they're doing can just plug in and everybody gets the same results. It's still uh, the aesthetic choices of the engineer. Um, so that's why you could run a successful mastering business out of anything, anywhere, you know, um, because yes, equipment is important. You have to have the bare minimum basics, right? You have to know how to use that stuff for sure. Um, speakers, yeah, they're important, but more important is you knowing your speakers, right? The limitations, um, the advantages. Uh, if you've worked on the same pair of speakers for your whole life, my guess is you could probably put out some really great sounding stuff on it because you know already what that sounds like in other places. You've done the car tests. You've taken it over to your friend's house and checked it out on Friday night. You know, um, that having perspective um, and and having being comfortable with what you're working on is more important than any other aspect of mastering or engineering. Um, it's nice to have nice tools. It's nice to be in a nice room. But I guarantee that if you don't know that stuff, you don't know it, right? I could take, like, for instance, I'm kind of a fish out of water when I walk into somebody else's studio, no matter how nice it is or how acoustically treated, because I really just don't know what I'm hearing. And, you know, you have to have a frame of reference. So it doesn't matter if your speakers cost $100,000. If you don't have a frame of reference and you don't know how it's gonna sound in the real world, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. It's awesome if you can do it. Um, it looks cool on Instagram, but you do not need that stuff to make great sounding records. I totally agree with all of that. I, I, it's funny. I have a, a good friend of mine, an old bandmate of mine as well. He He's a mastering engineer out of Toronto, and uh, he works at one of the biggest facilities, one of, one of the big ones in Canada. And um, no matter where we were, whenever we would get together and like start demoing things, whether it was my house or his house or someone else's house or, or a big studio, he always had a USB stick with him that had Weezer's Beverly Hills on it. That was his song. And he he would listen to that song no matter what system it was because that was his frame of reference. And he would understand, okay, this is what the low end sounds like in this room. This is how, you know, and to me, that's like when I, when I watched him do that for the first time, I was like, what are you doing? And then it made so much sense to me after he yep. explained it, you know? And, and so it really does come down to that like calibration of your ears and, you know, understanding your room, your environment and, um, you know, I think that's why the car test exists. I think that's because people listen to so much music in their car right. that they're just so used to what it sounds like and they, they trust it. It's, it's absolutely. And it's one of the reasons actually I don't do attended sessions, uh, not just because there was a pandemic, but because, um, uh, a, it's a distraction for me when I'm working, but B, you don't know my room. And so if you're here and you want to say, oh, I don't know about the high end or something, it's like you, but you don't really know, 
what the high end's doing because you don't really know my room, you know? Um, and that's important. So it's like, I'm like, you know, let me do a test master one song. Then he gives you an idea of how the bass and the, you know, the low end and the high end and all that kind of stuff is going to translate in your room on the speakers that you know, because you listen to everything on, right? And if it sounds good there, guess what? It is. It's good. You know, that's a more that, you know, it, whereas, you know, my room, you know, it's, 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 you know, you could be wowed by it or not, but the point is you don't, you're not, re you don't really know what you're hearing again, because you need that Weezer test or whatever, you, know, yeah. you need to hear your song, you play my song on that system, then I'll know. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I think that there's the, a lot of those big studios, they have that wow factor of all well, like gear, like you said, or even, you know, even like most recording studios, they always have the big speakers on the, you know, the big mains. It's like, those are, those are just like the impressive speakers, you know, they, they, they blow you away with how loud they are and how much low end there is, but you, you don't know what they sound like. You, you don't know how that room sounds. So, you know. <laughs> no. And that's another thing. I don't listen loud. You know, the louder you go, the more room reflections and distortion and all this other stuff. Not to mention, it's not good for your hearing, you know? So save that for the concerts, put some earplugs in, but like, I don't work loud. I mean, I'll turn it up, you know, towards the end to make sure that nothing's like, you know, weird, but generally I get a better, idea of what's going on at a lower volume and that's probably why i still have my hearing um you know what's your livelihood do you need you need your ears yeah, to, some to of these live. cats burn their hear, ears out like i don't know how they keep going you know and then also age is unkind to you because you you start to lose your hearing too as as you get older so it's like i hope some of these cats have you know a good backup plan you know so <laughs> like just look, just looking at meters <laughs> yeah, slap your well, yeah. And could you and I've had guys tell me, like, I'll just look at meters. I'm like, good luck with that. I've never looked at a meter and been able to I mean, yeah, if it's really screwed up, maybe you can tell by looking at a meter, but like fine-tuning stuff, no way. You can't tell by looking at a meter. I don't care how fine it is. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The the meters just they don't respond the way your ears do. Like <laughs> No, and it's not, you know, and the meters aren't musical. It doesn't make a musical, you know, frequency, just balanced frequencies is not musical. It's, you know what I mean? That's, there's an important distinction. And this is where I go back to it being an art. There are aesthetic choices that are not reflective of where your meters are sitting, you know, and that's something, you know, there's no tip or trick, you know, <laughs> it's literally just, you either have good taste or you don't, you know what I mean? Like you, you either know what a good sounding thing is or you don't. And you can't learn that, right? There's no YouTube video for that. I can't teach you why the Beatles are awesome. I can't. I don't know. If you don't know already, I, how do you do it? How do I teach that? You yeah. know what I mean? It's so true. It's, you know, it's, you'd mentioned that, um, I think it was the, the Bobcats book that was it that you had read yeah. earlier. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure that book told you all of the tools that you needed to know for mastering. But at the end of the day, it's like the taste is what matters and every song is going to be different. So you can't write about those things. You know, I've written a book myself and it's it's hard to write about things that people should be hearing, you know, but because there's no standard for it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's a taste thing, you know, and so that's why everybody brings their own you know, backgrounds and experience and, and taste to, to, to what they do. And it, it's what makes them, them and unique, you know, and it's also why ultimately, 
we're not really competing with each other. You know, like I'm like my, the people that work with me and have for over 10 or 15 years, I'm not worried about losing you to somebody else. You know, I, I want to make you happy every time, but that's why you keep coming back to me is that I listen to you and I do what you want. Right. And I do a thing, a particular thing with you that you like that nobody else does. And sometimes you may need a change or whatever, but like, we're not competing. Like I'm not like a, the whole, there's a lot of competition and sort of comparisons that go on and in, in engineering and mastering and stuff. And I'm like, the more the merrier, you know, like there's plenty to go around and you have to find your people. That's the exactly. nice thing about the internet is there, your people are there. You just need to find them. And there's people that think like you, and listen to the stuff that you listen to and get you, you know? So that stuff's important too. You know? Of course. Yeah. You're building up a team and you want a team of people who see the same vision as you do. And I think that that's why that that's the reason why mastering engineers aren't scared by like a thing like Lander or any of these automated mastering processors. Cause it's like, there's no person behind them. There's no, there's no objective opinion. It's just like some algorithm that does what it does. And Maybe it makes it sound better, and by that by that test, it may work. But it's not it's not going to be something you can rely on and trust every time you have a project. No, I, I mean, listen, Lander's for somebody. It's it's good for something, and I, you know, I, you're absolutely right. There's no, I don't know anyone who's threatened by that stuff as of yet. Uh, and I, you know, I find it comical. I mean, a you know, uh, if I'm really competing against Lander, that's fine. Uh, listen to my master, listen to Lander. If Lander's better than me, I should go find something else to do, you know, because, you know, like you said, it's an algorithm and it's like, that's, that's, you know, if that works for you and that delivers what your expectation is, right. You know, I, you're, I'm not, I'm not your, what you're looking for, you know? And again, but if I was, you know, if I was losing gigs to Lander right and left, I would be, uh, like I said, I'd be looking into something else to do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 you know, you're you're always comparing, right? Like, which is better and which is the best? You know, that, I guess when you're doing those kind of shootouts, right? That's I think what it's it comes great. Down to. Honestly, I do. I, I think the more the merrier, and I think it's good to have uh, get masters from you know, all of these places, these little automated places and, you know, and find out like, why does one guy charge 25 bucks a song uh, and another guy charge 200 a song, you know? And, and listen, if you can't tell the difference between the two, maybe you found the next, you know, uh, uh, big guy, you know, big mastery person, not guy could be anybody, you know? You, so, you know, don't automatically rule out. I mean, test masters are great. Don't automatically rule out somebody who's like half the price or a quarter of the price, they're young. They're just getting started. They could be the next badass, you know? And I really like, I'm a big fan of that. Like give people a chance uh, just cause I am who I am and charge what I charge. Doesn't mean there isn't some young, you know, kid out there who can kick my ass on something, you know? So give them a chance and certainly kick my ass. If, if it's, if the, you know, if the, he's half the price and he's like remotely close to me, go for it. You know, like I started somewhere, everybody has to start somewhere. And I, I'm all for, um, you know, competition, you know, they're in, like I said, the tools are ubiquitous. Everybody can do it now. So game on, you know, what's may the, may the best person win. <laughs> I love it. it you're, you're a very humble person. And, it, you know, it. I, I think 
that's an important thing in in anyone. You know, when you're listen, life will kick the crap out of you regardless. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I don't know how you make it through life without just learning. You know, I mean, if you get beat up or insulted or offended or whatever humiliated i mean that's life you know and at some point you kind of just you either have to lose the ego and let it go you know and learn again this stuff's about learning you know when there's a moment where you feel insulted or humiliated maybe you were wrong but maybe there's a lesson in there for you right maybe there you need to go and learn that new thing or uh give somebody else a chance and go wow you know what they're actually good maybe they're better than me on that you know i gotta get i gotta you know sharpen up my chops you know but life life is not fair right it's not fair and there's plenty of cats out there who will kill it and do better than you on stuff and you're always going to be going well why why do they get that or why is why are they doing better than me and i'm better you know what that's life you know so you just got to lose the ego and do your best put your head down and do the work um because life's not fair yeah (laughs) (laughs) no i don't know how i got off on that but no no but it's 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 very true and and you have to just check with yourself every now and then and and i love what you said about learning it's like there's always something to learn even when you feel like something's wrong or whatever like look look at it from that that forest view and and see you know what what can you pick up from that so very interesting point um when you start a mastering project what's your normal mindset going into that? Like, where do you start? Like, what are the first couple of thoughts that you're processing when you're listening to, to a song? Well, I'm listening for balance. Um, and I'm listening for, uh, what could potentially be an issue, right? So, uh, if, you know, the low end is unruly or their sibilance, you know, just real generic stuff like that. And also I'm listening for what's the thing uh, what are we hanging the song on? Is it the vocal? Is it that it's a rocking band? You know, is it that it's the beat, you know, or it's the low end? Like, what is the thing that I feel like they're featuring in the song? Um, start there and then don't screw that up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then maybe it, it, you can embellish it uh, while fixing some of the other stuff. But the the, the idea is that whatever I do, uh, don't ruin the part that clearly the song is built on, right? Um, a lot of stuff like singer songwriter stuff, it's built on the vocal and the vocal melody. So, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I get mixes and I'm like, why is the vocal not louder? You know, um, and I'm a mastering engineer. Like I can, you know, do what I do and not cream the vocal and actually accentuate it. And, um, you know, and it doesn't get buried even more, you know. Uh, under the landslide of compression and limiters. So, you know, it's just learning how not to ruin what's working about the song and, and hopefully sort of embellish it. And, um, but, you know, and, you know, and as I said, another part of that is also, again, when I first listen is the reference, you know, what is this, what is a good representation of this style of music, you know, uh, so that I have, again, like a sort of a, a frame of reference for it. Yeah, of course. That, that's great. I, I really like that answer because, yeah, you have to make sure that you're serving the song at all times and you're not getting away from that and you're adding the right right ingredients to make it sound even better. Um, you had mentioned balance and 
to me, balance is something that ties into like mixed translation. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to their mixes and ultimately to mastering as well. Mastering is where it should all be translating at the end, right? So what's your approach with mixed translation and, and how do you ensure that your masters will translate from system to system? Um, again, it's my use of references. So, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I already know the stuff that sounds good from, from room to room. Um, so I sort of have like a big folder of like probably uh, 200 songs, uh, all of which I think are mixed and mastered in a great way. And I, you, and I know that those all sound good wherever I play them. So those are kind of the, that's sort of the library for me. Um, and I know what my room sounds like. So I know, I know if I can make it sound good in my room that it will translate in that way. Cause I already have done that, you know, that, that work. Um, I, uh, balance, you know, the, it's a EQ and compression and stuff like that is a tricky thing. Uh, because I'll, you have to, um, with mastering, you're adding volume, generally speaking, not always, but, a good good amount of time uh and all of that stuff like balances can get out of whack very quickly if you just strap a limiter across stuff right so like a lot of times people mix at a certain volume and in a certain way with the compression and whatever that they're using at the time and that works within that context but the minute that you add 6 db of gain it just all goes to hell right and that's the the art of of mastering as well as sort of like, okay, well, how loud does it need to be? Uh, um, and then, you know, you want to stop just short of it all just falling to hell. Uh, or how can you sort of EQ or compress it in a certain way so that it doesn't sound like it's completely deteriorating. Right. Um, so balance is that's a, it's tricky, uh, cause it's relative to sort of, um, volume and it's it's kind of why it's important you know i almost um, right off the bat gain stage everything uh gain everything up r just right off the bat so i know exactly what this is going to sound like at full blast uh and then i start carving away or you know lowering uh you know backing off from the threshold um and sort of just that's when i start kind of do, doing the finessing to sort of make sure that it works at a certain volume you know mm -hmm. uh, so but for balance Go ahead. I was going to say, you had mentioned that like volume is obviously going to be bringing up a lot of the things that people maybe haven't thought about. And if they're not familiar with the mastering process, you know, there, there's a lot of people who just knew that. Um, do you have any tips for people to to keep in mind while they're mixing so that they can make sure that their masters sound better? Yeah, I do. Yeah, there's a couple of good ones. So a couple of things uh, right off the bat, some of the things that I deal with uh, right away. The song starts out a certain way because the compressor is not grabbing much. And usually a song will start out quieter because everybody's a little bit more tentative. It, it might not just be a dynamic approach, an intentional dynamic approach. Uh, when you have live players, they're a little more timid starting out, and then it gets more rocking towards the end, which is natural. People get more excited. The song gets more exciting. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a, the, the big climax at the end. So it makes sense. Right. But 
keep in mind that that excitement translates into people digging in harder on their instruments. Um, so you could be hitting the compressor harder. So one of two things happen. You get too much compression at the end where you lose all the transients and the song gets quieter. Uh, that's problem one. The other problem is you have the compressor and all of the EQs and stuff set perfectly for when everyone's playing really rocking and loud. But when it's quiet, it's thin and doesn't sound full because it's the compressor's not grabbing. Right. So those are little things that I kind of address in mastering. So I know I have tips and tr like I have tricks that I use to bring out the transients at the end. And a lot of it's automation, you know, because I can't treat the end the same as I treat the beginning. So that's when mastering starts to look a little bit more like mixing because I'm actually automating uh, thresholds and EQs and stuff to sort of bring out, you know, at the end to get a little more thump out of the bass because the bass thins out when the compressor's overreacting and the snare starts to disappear, you know? So I have tricks to like sort of accentuate those things um, and just sort of change the release and attack times on my compression um, on my end. And the same with the beginnings of songs, you know, if the song starts out light and the compressor's not grabbing and it sounds kind of thin, you know, but I find the sweet spot in a song where everything sounds kind of full, where, sounds thick and sort of you know it's got a good sort of groove and i find and i uh, apply that that level that treatment of compression so that it's even across the song it doesn't necessarily need to be the same volume and i'm not trying to lose dynamics but i'm trying to find that richness that that sweet spot that the, you got in that one part of the song where everything seemed to be nicely balanced you know so i'm looking to iron out spots like that again it's not a volume thing it's a it's a tone thing and a, people don't realize that you know tone changes as you hit the compressor you know and there's always a sweet spot and then there's the part where it goes too far or it's not enough you know so i do a lot of little seesaw movements like that uh in songs uh that that would be the big one the other one is people don't realize a lot of times that they're because they're work i think because they're working at lower volume and they may not be listening with a limiter on uh which is good those are good things to do but when you're kind of starting to wrap up a mix you definitely want to strap a limiter across if you're not using one just so you can hear what's going on when it's loud because that's what's going to happen in mastering and if it doesn't sound good those are the problems that we're going to be dealing with moving forward. And one of the problems is pumping, right? The New York style, like where, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's not, I think a lot of times these days it's, it's not done intentionally. There isn't like a groove, right? It's not a side chain sort of intentional groove thing that somebody's got going, like where I can hear the compressor shutting down and opening up. And that kind of stuff becomes very, very obvious when you add any kind of EQ or limiting on top of it. And so I've had people go, well, I hear pumping. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. And it's not on my end, you know? And in fact, I that one's a pain because I have to ride my limiter volume to sort of compensate for these weird ebbs and flows that are going on in the middle of choruses where it's like all of a sudden one of the snare hits gets swallowed up and then the next minute the symbols come rushing back and and you're like what's going on there right it's like not intentional doesn't sound good sounds like something just dropped out right 
And that stuff becomes more accentuated when you sort of raise the volume and kind of you're kind of adding detail to the mid range and stuff. So uh, pumping, watch out for that. You can't hear it when it's quiet and it's subtle, but man, when you hit some limiting and the, you can really hear it with the low end and the cymbals, you know, and the and it really sounds like your mix is getting swallowed, you know, and then getting spit back out, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a good point to bring up, and and I and I know that there's a lot of people who that that whole idea of master bus limiting or compression it, for a lot of people like they're scared of it. You know, they, they don't, don't know if they should be doing it or, you know, like, and, and I think a lot of mastering engineers have a lot of conflicting information about that as well. Some people are like, yeah, leave all your master bus compression and all that stuff on there and I'll work off of that. And other people are like, no, give me everything with no, no master bus processing at all. So I'm curious to know your thoughts on like what, what you like. I, I generally trust you, you know, so I want, what I say is, if there's any doubt in your mind about it, give me both. Give me a mix without your 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 sweet sauce, right, on it, on the master bus, and then give me a mix with the sweet sauce. Because at least if it's, if you're doing it right, I want to hear, uh, if you're doing it right, then it's great. And I can listen to the, the unvarnished mix and the varnished mix, and I can make that choice, and that's, and that's fine. If you're doing it wrong, um, I can use the the unvarnished mix. But my point is, I want both. If you're insecure about it, I want both. You know, um, like the reason I don't just want it with nothing on it is there is a reason for that. Um, I I prefer to hear it the way that you got used to it and the way that probably the mix was approved, right? Um, and the reason is that um, sometimes there is a huge divide between the unvarnished mix and the stuff with the mix bus on it, because you probably worked with that mix bus stuff on it. You mixed into that the entire time. So when you remove it, sometimes there is a big difference between the two. So if I just get the unvarnished mix with nothing on the mix bus, sometimes there's a big reach between what you intended and what it sounds like. And I have to guess at that point where you're going with it, right? And my, as a mastering engineer, my, my, my initial instinct is to, is to stay faithful to what you gave me. So I'm not going to make a huge lift into something completely like white noise, you know, limited and all this stuff. If, um, unless I know that that's kind of what you were, that's what the approved mix sounded like, right? So that either way, that gives me a very good idea of what the intent was, um, whether it was right or wrong, you know. So it gives me a okay, you want it slammed, but I can slam it better than you can. So, you know, that gives me a good idea. So generally that's why I kind of encourage people to give me both if there's any doubt. But a lot of times, you know, people are, are you know, I, I deal with all kinds of mixers, and a lot of times people it's intentional and they want it that way and they want they don't want to give me the choice, and that's fine. And that's good. I'm I'm happy if you're decisive. I'm decisive. The only time I start to question anything is when I, I'm getting a lot of questions from you. I'm like, okay, this is indecision, and I need to know. I need to have options and know what you were shooting for. You know. Yep, for sure. And I think that that's that's just also something you learn 
as you start to work more with a specific engineer as well, you kind of learn how they operate and how you can prepare your stuff better. And it, it you eventually kind of build up your own confidence and your skills to have things set up the way you need it to be for, for when you pass it off to your team to get it done right. Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Last question I want to ask you about mastering. In the end, what do you think makes a great mastered mix? Yeesh. Uh, that you don't notice all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like literally, like sometimes I'll listen when I'm done and I go, if I'm able to transport out of the working on it part and I can listen and go, this is a cool tune. Job well done. Yeah. Right. That's the point. I, I shouldn't be like taken out of it somehow by what the hell was that? And I don't mean like playing. I mean like siblings or an, an edit, right? A pop, a click, um, unruly bass stuff or something, you know, like it should just be, Ooh, that's a good song. Sounds good. Good groove. Like, you know, listen to that, whatever that is. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're listening to what's actually going on in the music. That's a good master. Of course. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think when you compare like the unmastered versus the the mastered too, like you don't want to be distracted by the things that the engineer did necessarily too. You know, like you, sometimes just that is this better feeling is ultimately that what matters. You know, and I, I can say when I was when I was checking out samples that you have on your website, it's like there wasn't anything where I was like, oh, he cranked the crap out of this frequency or whatever. You know, it's like it, it they just sounded better. You know, <laughs> like and I think that that's really important. Yeah, I'm not trying to. You're not you're not trying to show off, you know, like in fact, mastering is the opposite. <laughs> you know, I mean, again, it should be, it should be better. Uh, but it, you know, but just listening to it on its own with no frame of reference, you should not even think about it. It's weird that way, you know? Um, but the mastering engineer is not the star, <laughs> you know I mean? Nobody, you know, my name's not on that record. I mean, it is, but it's not, you know, that's not the the thing that's selling that freaking record. Yeah, people right? aren't looking up your name on Spotify. <laughs> no, and like, and whatever. And that's a whole nother thing. But like, and I'm fine with that, right? I like, I really enjoy just the part that I play in it. And like, but I don't have any pretense about, you know, I'm not the artist and I want it to be the best thing that showcases the artist. My whole point is for them to look good, you know? I'm, I'm just sort of, you know, I'm playing a small part in that. And, um, you know, the whole point is not my ego and, you know, Hey, listen to how, you know, whatever, listen to how loud that is. You know what I mean, like, that's just stupid. It's stupid. So it's just like, is it good? And does it suit the artist? And, you know, is it the best foot forward for them? You know? Absolutely. I love that. that. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap up here. Um, if people want to learn more about you and follow you online or potentially even work with you, what's the best way for them to, to follow you online? Um, just, you know, just Google my name, right? Hans Decline. So that's, uh, you know, with a K. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have a link to it in the show notes as well so people can click on that. Um, and lastly, are there any cool projects that you're currently working on that you might be able to talk about? There are cool projects. Um I can't talk about them. All right. <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, get a jump on the artist for announcing stuff. But, uh, yeah, I just recently did a, a record, uh, a re it's a reissue for something that came out in the uh, mid nineties, um, that a, a big engineer did and, um, they're doing a reissue on, on it and it's, uh, it's cool. 
So, uh, and unfortunately, I can't give you any more other details than that. But, you know, that, that's fine. Eventually, we'll see your name in the credits somewhere. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll, awesome. I'll Facebook about it. So. Yeah, yeah. Let us let us know. We'll, we'll push it. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Hans, thank you so much for taking the time to do do this. I really do appreciate it, and I think the just the the humble nature of how you approach things, and and just just your, the detail that you went into with your answers, I think is going to help out a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that you were able to do this. Thank you. Well, likewise, Mike. I, I think what you're doing is great, and it was a, a total pleasure. I appreciate you uh, asking me to do it. So that was my interview with Hans Decline, and that was such a fun interview. I think that he's just such a humble guy, and I love how he was talking about that idea of, like, there is no competition, and that, you know, he he was very vocal about the fact that, yeah, you can master without having tons of experience and all that stuff. I, I just loved his approach. I thought it was really refreshing, and, you know, the whole idea of whether or not you're making your song sound better in the end, I think that that is just a major lesson, and it's something that, whether you're mixing or whether you're mastering music, is always the goal. You always want your track to sound better, and if you've done that, then you've made progress. And you know, as you mix from mix to mix, if you've made your song sound better, then you're making progress. And I think that that's just a big valuable lesson to learn in all of this. And, you know, his his whole point of finding things to learn from every experience is also just another solid point. So, um, yeah, that was a lot of fun having Hans on the podcast and just shed a lot of great insight into the mastering process and especially the mastering process of doing it from your home studio. So, Hans, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you like this podcast, guys, please make sure to subscribe to this so that you're notified about all new episodes as they go live. And if you haven't already yet, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studio, teaching you the process to make it simplified for you and make it fun and make it easy so you can put out better music and music that you're proud of and excited to share with the world. So once again, visit MasterYourMix.com. And when you're there, make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And inside of that book, we go step step by step through the entire mixing process. We talk about what you need to be analyzing, what you need to be listening for, how to use the tools like EQ, compression, effects, automation, all that stuff that you need to know how to use in order to make your remixes sound better and make them sound more pro and get you that polish that your tracks deserve. So once again, that's called The Mixing Mindset, and it's a book that's available at MasterYourMix.com. All right, guys, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to the very end, and I'll talk to you in the next one. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.